WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lineup with Dave Prodan. I'm Dave Prodan, and since I've been away on spring break with the kids, today's episode is a re-air of our Mick Fanning two-parter from March 2020. Mick, of course, was retired at that point, but still surfing incredibly sharp as he embarked on his post-competitive career of search trips and the occasional CT wildcard. And while armchair critics on social media were less than enthused with his wildcard performances in 2021, it would be hard to argue that he's still not one of the best Bells Beach surfers on the planet, cemented even further by last week's wildcard performance at the Rip Curl Pro Bells Beach, where he took out then world number one Kanoa Igarashi in their round three clash. The event, of course, was won by Felipe Toledo and Tyler Wright, and we are now all heading into the midseason cut at the next CT stop in Margaret River, commencing on April 24th. More on all of that when we come back with fresh episodes next week. But for now, please enjoy the lineups March 2020 conversation with three-time WSL champion Mick Fanning. The good old clap take one. That's right. How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did. I wanted to be a world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? You can shut your fucking lips. And then I'll just say, put them up once. Let's go. He's like, you look too pretty on the wave. Get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. It's not your boxing. Cool. Well, well, Mick, thanks for coming on the lineup. You are currently still rehabilitating from tearing your ACL mm-hmm. during the Stab in the Dark All-Stars with Dane and Jordy in South Africa. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened, how you got injured, and what the rehab process has been like? 
Um, yeah, look, I was, um, we're sort of just getting towards the end of a surf and, um, yeah, just come out and just like cool away, got a little barrel. As I came out, I went to just do a, um, just a, a standard, you know, layback carve sort of thing. And halfway through my knee just felt like it just popped out and I knew instantly it was gone. Um, and yeah, from then on, it was just, all right, <laughs> what's next? And, uh, so that was in, that was in August. It's now what January, mid Jan. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a long process. I won't lie. Um, if you can avoid doing an ACL, please avoid it. Cause it's the most boring in injury ever. You can't do anything. It's just such a slow build up And, um, yeah, so um yeah, I'm I'm almost I'm so I'm five months out now. Um I actually just text um Chris Prosser and uh my friend Taylor Cecil, who's doing all my rehab. Um and I'm like, All right boys, when I get home it's time to um check the knee out. It's time to go surfing. I'm losing it. <laughs> well, I was saying that around the office the other day when I reached out to you. I'm like, he must be so fucking bored because this is the fastest he's ever gotten back to me about doing anything. I'm like, I still have unanswered texts from like 10 years ago. And I, I just think like, it must be like a particular type of torture for someone like you to be out of the ocean. He just got me at a good time. <laughs> um, no, look, I, I've been really busy actually. It's um, even though I've been, um, you know, working on rehab and, you know, trying to go to do something each and every day, there is a, still a lot of downtime, um, but I've been doing all kinds of different things, which has been awesome. It's been uh, – it, I've done a whole lot of firsts in, in my life, which has been cool. So, um, What have been some of those? Um, I learned how to scuba dive. I, um, I don't know why I did this, but I went and learned how to play golf. <laughs> um, and I think uh, the golf thing is like a friendship thing because so many – probably of your friends and my friends, they do it. And if you don't play, you're like, well, I'm missing out on like four hours of shit talking with my friends. Yeah. Look, I never thought of it that way. I um, <laughs> just didn't like it. I, I played a little bit um, back in the day when we, we won a bunch of golf clubs um, yeah. during a, uh, a team's event. And I started playing golf then. And then after about two months, I'm like, fuck this, I'm over it. And then, um, and then I, I got an invitation to go down to the President's Cup in, in Melbourne. And, uh, yeah, they're like, oh, yeah, so um, you're going to have to play golf. And I'm like, oh, shit. And um, <laughs> so I was like, okay, do I? Normally I just turn golf down, but um, you know, Ash Barty, world number one tennis player, invited me. I was like, well, it's too good of an opportunity not to go down and check out. So, um, yeah, I learned how to play golf and – I'm still really bad at it, but um, it's been pretty funny. Well, that downtime too, you know, I don't know if the genesis for this project was pre-injury, but you obviously announced the project Save the Shark. You're mm -hmm. working with Taylor Steele and Nat Geo. Can you tell us about where that came from and, and what exactly it is? Um, yeah, so my history with Taylor Steele, known each other for forever, um, and we did a project back in 2000. 13 called missing where he pretty much uh kidnapped me for three weeks we did um seven countries in in 18 days or something like that and uh and on that journey we we did 
some really crazy things. Like we went and sat with the um, sat with the gorillas in Rwanda, um, and went and did the running with the bulls in Pamplona, which is still the dumbest thing I've ever done. Still the scariest thing I've ever done. Um, I do not recommend that one bit. People was like, <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's great. And it's seriously the stupidest thing <laughs> never, ever again. Um, how close did you get? Oh, bull ran past me. like me to your way. I'm, just oh, like, no. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a, it's a, pretty funny story we um yeah we're we're getting ready and everyone's you know we're standing with all these grandmas and grandpas and everyone's just cruising and um and then this person comes up and does this questionnaire do you know the rules no (laughs) do you uh do you know what the history of it is not really um (laughs) do you know you can die today oh thanks and and then like Two minutes before um, the balls get let out, all the grandmas and grandpas and all the people that we thought we could beat disappear. And Taylor and I are just standing with these professional runners with sponsors all over their shirts. And <laughs> it was just like, what have we done? And, uh, but it was, yeah, it was, as I said, it's the dumbest thing i've ever done i've never been so scared in my life you don't realize how big they are like a similar story was years ago we were in costa rica for a surf trip and we went to one of the town festivals one night and they did the full endless summer thing where there's a bull ring it's like a makeshift bull ring and you're allowed to go in there's not really any rules and we do a fair amount of drinking and we're like oh, let's go in and you look around and it's like there's no locals no. in the ring. Like it's just a bunch of drunken expat surfers or tourists and they come out. The bulls are huge. Yeah, they're massive. They're yeah. massive. We went, and we were towards the end of the festival too. So they saved the biggest bulls for last. And uh, so, yeah, that was um, – it was really, really freaking scary. <laughs> it was stupid. But anyway, from that, um, Taylor and I – we've sort of made an unspoken pact that if we go and do silly things, then you got to bring the other one along. And um, so I took him up to Alaska um, for a wild arc trip and, you know, got to see bears and stuff like that. And then on that trip, we started talking about all these different things of what we can and can't do for, you know, the world and the environment. And, um, we had this idea of, of going and, and facing sharks again. Um, so yeah, we've just, just come back from the first, the first installment of that. We're in the Bahamas and in Miami and, um, swimming with everything from, um, lemon sharks, the reef sharks to, uh, hammerheads, tigers, bull sharks, um, and met, incredible people along the way people that um i learned so much from um and just really people that really care for for these animals and really care for these uh now that i'm sort of looking at them they're more like dogs of the sea Mm. um you know they've they've all got different emotions and stuff like that but um yeah on on this project we're going to we're trying to look at why sharks behave the way they do, why they're coming back into different areas, um, why 
there seems to be more attacks. Right. Um, and so it's it's really cool, and it's it's led us down some pathways that tie back to climate change, uh, different currents changing in the in the oceans, and um, and then also, you know, reef healthiness, um, you know, and then overfishing, which is everyone knows, but it, it's really cool how it's a it's a huge three sixty effect and. Um, yeah, just learning about all these different things. I think people are going to hopefully look at sharks a little bit different just from watching this and experiencing this. So the intent is like education and potentially like conservation for a lot of people once they look at the project. Very much so. And it, well, there's, there's almost two things. Obviously, the, the conservation side of it um, and the education side of it's one thing. Um, for me, starting it was more of a personal journey as well to see if i was if i was okay and okay with looking at these uh enormous creatures in the in the ocean and and being around them and you know seeing if what feelings i would get and see if anything came up and um it's been it's been fun it's been fun um yeah there's been some great moments <laughs> well and you are obviously uniquely positioned to participate in a project like this i mean one of the the biggest notes in your career internationally was the incident at jeffrey's bay in 2015. i vividly remember where i was when it happened i think it's sort of like it's almost like a 9 11 thing like mm -hmm. in surfing um you know we talked about no sleep with kids and stuff my kids were a little over a year old at the time so i wasn't traveling and it was like five or six in the morning california time yeah. and I admittedly had fallen asleep during the semifinals at my desk and then I woke up right when the heat started. Yeah. And as it happened, I was still in this fog of like that. Is that real? That's not real. <laughs> yeah. And then my first thought was, well, he didn't get bit. So maybe I'm not going to even have to do anything about this. And then I immediately was just like, oh, oh, oh wow. <laughs> look, look, looking back through like the prism of a few years mm -hmm. for you and, and, and even your learnings on this project, can you kind of break down what happened for you in the moment and, and how you view that today yeah look it, it it was sort of i guess this was awesome to go on this journey as well and meet the people that i have because it, it cleared up a lot of things for me um you know just seeing what they thought the experts thought right and, and this and that and um you know for for me when it when it you know came to attack i always i always thought it was going for my board mm. Um, you know, I, I never personally saw teeth or, you know, I just saw the side of the thing and, and in the opportunity that it could have just taken me out, yeah, it didn't, right. it went for my board and it was like, okay, well maybe that's it. And, um, and so, you know, m more talking about that, it's, it was more, I think it was just cruising on pass as they do at J-Bay, you know, they come up the point and, and cruise along and it was like, oh, let's, might just check this out real quick. And it, once it got stuck in my leg rope, it, it freaked out. Right. Um, and then, yeah, so it was like, oh, I've got to get out of this situation. So it thrashed and, you know, hit me in the head. And <laughs> um, but yeah, it just was just, something that it would always just it was it sort of went from in my own head attack to encounter 
to inquisitive, um, you know, and and, it, and because that was in my brain, I, I never, I wasn't a person to go, oh, let's cull every freaking shark under the sun. Like that was never my, never my view. It was like, it happened. Mm-hmm. It happened. It's like how many people walk across the street and almost get hit by a car. You sure, know? yeah. It happened. Um, but yeah, we we sort of on this journey, we we investigate that a bit, and um, you know, I relive it a, a little bit more as well. So, sort of explain exactly what was happening at what certain time and what what was going through my head and right. Because in my head, it went on for 10 minutes. You sure? And you see the, the footage and it goes for 10 seconds. The, the footage, it's, it's almost like if you had to direct the most like terrifying looking footage, mm. like it almost did it organically in a lot of ways because the wave comes up and you can't see you. But I always remembered, because like, I've watched it more times than I care to admit, but it seemed like you sensed something before it was even there, before the thrashing started. And and I always wondered if that was, you know, just a heightened state of awareness from you because you were in competitive mode. And, and I always wanted to know if you, if that was the case. To, to be honest, because I'd been sitting there for, you know, oh, probably about five minutes, mm. I was almost just about to move and head down the point towards Julian. Mm-hmm. And I was just, like even watching the footage, I sit there and I scratch my nose and I'm thinking and I'm like, all right, and I'm just about to go and then I heard something. Yeah. Um, inquisitively, I won't lie, had nothing. <laughs> so uh, I just heard the splash and I guess if I wasn't in competition mode, I probably would have reacted a little bit different. Uh, probably wouldn't have been as sharp as right. where everything was yeah. and um, trying to get out of its way. Uh, but, yeah, it's it, there's so many different things to, to go down. And um, even just re-watching it, you know, last week, I saw things that I hadn't seen before that I'm like in my brain going, did that even happen, you know? And because I finally saw it, I'm like, oh, thank you. <laughs> you know. Do you, and I and I, the the whole thing about it feeling like ten minutes. Um, you know, I wonder if if that's something that, you know, time kind of slows down for people like that when the adrenaline kicks in. It it, it could be something like that in a lot of ways. Very much so. It yeah. was. It was. It was total adrenaline. Um, and yeah, everything just slows down. You know, you talk to different people in different things, um, you know, fighter pilot jets or, yep. um, you know, people in really high pressure situations, everything moves so slowly for them. And um, I guess the best analogy for, for surfers is when you're in a tube and you think you're getting a 50 second long tube you come out and you're not even in it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd heard something similar. I don't remember where I heard on the radio somewhere as a psychologist breaking it down and they were talking about action sport athletes and how there is a correlation between how they process adrenaline and why they're so good at what they do. And he said, look, it's, it's, it is, it, it is in your DNA in the sense of, you know, they're probably the descendants of, of people that hunted mastodons, you know, and, and that, that strain of humanity survived because they were able to process adrenaline differently and take the mastodon down and feed the, the family, et cetera. And 
he said there's, there's not a lot different in terms of how some people are able to process adrenaline in a really effective way compared to others. Yeah, and it's funny. You, you meet these people like action sport heroes and um, they're not comfortable until they're doing something really stupidly crazy. Yeah. You know, someone like a Travis Pastrana or a Robbie Madison or something. Yeah. If they're not doing something stupid – they're not in the room with you. They're like, what can I do to it? That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and it's, it's interesting you say that too because there was an element of that conversation that associated with substance abuse too because they said, look, it's the same center of the brain that needs that hit for a lot of people, you mm -hmm. know, and, and a lot of times it's people trying to create an equilibrium between the highs and lows of what they do. Yeah, well, how many retired sports people have you seen just fall off the wayside due to substance abuse yeah. or something like that? Um you know, and that's probably <laughs> that's probably why we're so wild when we do party. <laughs> Too many beers, like yeah. The um, you know, one of the things that I remember being on tour at the time um, that it was feel felt really eerie um, after that was all the other incidents with sharks for you that kept creeping up. Whether it was sort of your first search back, I think it was in Cabarita or Casarina, in the lineup at Chopu, in the lineup at Trestles, and and. What was going through your head when all this was happening? Um, not too much. Um, you know, I was still processing these type of things, but I think it's like it's like when you buy a red car, you always keep seeing red cars. Right. You know, if it was, if that hadn't happened, maybe it was like, well maybe that wasn't such a big deal. Like I'd seen sharks out Chirpu all the time. Right. All the time. You know, you swim with them. Yeah. You go into one of the other reef passes or in the lagoons and you totally swim with them. Right. You know, and, and that's that's how I I processed it that. Yeah. Um there was a there was a couple of little incidents. So I was sort of like, oh, you know, just making sure that other people knew what was going on. But since the incident, my heightened sense of awareness of seeing things in the water was tenfold. Right. I would see everything that moved and I'd be like, oh, what's that? What's that? And, you know, you just, okay, that's that. You know, it's a stingray or oh, it's a turtle or, yeah, that was a fin. Uh, let's just see where it pops up again, <laughs> you know. So it's it wasn't like I wasn't crippled by, oh, there's a fin, I've got to go in. Um, a lot of it was listening to my instincts as well and where in the past I would probably say if I felt something, I'd be like, oh, stop being soft or, you know, get over it. Like yeah. you're tripping. Where now it's like if I feel that instinct, it's okay, just go in. Right. You don't have to be a hero. You don't. And I actually had that that instance at, um, in J-Bay a couple of years later where I was just free surfing after the event and the waves were firing and something just didn't feel right. And I was like, as good as these waves are, I'm just going to go in. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I, was, I was proud of myself for actually doing that because the waves were so good. But once I got to shore, it was like, all right. You felt like you made I'm the learning. Right yeah. I'm learning for once. <laughs> does, does that, I mean, it's been a couple of years, not, not a whole lot of time, but like, do you still have that heightened sense of awareness today when you paddle out? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. yeah I'll, I'll see so much. 
the decision to come back the very next year, I remember, was really intentional in that you you made a few comments about wanting to face it and go early. And, and I just remember being totally floored by the psychological strength to be able to do that. Um, and then you won the event, you know, it was sort of, it sort of stuff a legend in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, look, <laughs> that was a, that was a, a, a trippy build up to that event. Um, in my own mind, I had unfinished business, mm-hmm. you know, I felt like I wanted to go and, and proved to myself that, all right, let's go and silence silence all the people that you know are building it up to be bigger than what it was mm. um but also face my own fears and 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 yeah just i guess smoothing out a couple of the speed bumps that i had in my own brain um and it was yeah the build up to it was crazy like you know all year people like Oh, you're going back to J Bay and they're they're building it up, building up, building up. And I was like, I'm just gonna go, I'm gonna go early, I'm gonna go and get it, get all that thing sorted before everyone shows up. Yeah. So I'm comfortable. And so went with a couple of mates and then um You hurt your foot. I too. did. I, I blew my ankle out second day, second day in. Um but before that we rocked up thinking there was going to be waves and there was no waves and it was flat for a whole day. And I was just like, okay. And then the the nervousness and the anxiousness started building. And then um, the people I was with, um, Corey Wilson and uh, Paul Daniels, um, we, were, we were sitting in the house and I could feel their tension. Mm. And it got to a point where I'm like, fuck it, I'm going out. and so i just you know pulled my wetsuit and just ran out and sat there for in exactly the same spot for probably about uh, what seemed like half an hour was only like three or four minutes but i sat there and it all started coming flooding back and and the nervousness and i'm like oh okay um and then a little wave popped up and i and i rode a wave and as soon as I kicked out of that wave, it was all done. Yeah. In my mind. For in sure. my mind. Yeah. It was done. All right. I'm settled. And um actually caught a couple more waves and then came in and the boys are on the beach and they're like, Are you okay? I'm like, Yeah, I'm just going to get a fun board. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so I went and grabbed <laughs> the went and grabbed the twin fin and, and paddled back out and surfed for another two hours. Yeah. Um, but it was it was a bit of a process and and then, you know, that was all before the media showed up and mm-hmm. then and then yeah second day i was there blew my ankle out and i'm just like oh no and i you know judging from the scans and stuff a lot of people don't know this but i actually blew it out to a point where they were like you're gonna have to go home and get surgery and i'm just like fuck yeah <laughs> you know you could you could imagine how the world would have blown up if oh yeah he pulls out and the he scru- says it's an scrutiny and, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah i'm yeah. like nah fuck it i'm i'll make this work and so for 10 days leading up to the event i worked with um physios down down in j bay that work on the event el mean was incredible um and then when the wsl medical staff came in i was 
working with Prosser day and night, you know, doing everything I possibly could. And it was it was holding stable. Mm-hmm. Um, it hurt like absolute hell. Mm. Um, but every night just get it strapped and just, I don't know, it was one of those events where things would just happen. Mm. If I needed a wave, one would just show up. It, I wasn't stressed out. I wasn't freaked out. I felt like once I surfed my first heat and, you know, got through on the dodgy ankle and, and did all that, it was like, all right, anything else now is a bonus. And, uh, yeah, it's sort of, um, as I said, things just kept coming my way. It's like, it's the ultimate, like get back on the horse kind of story in a lot of ways. And, and I don't know if you've given any thought to this, but like, was there ever a reality in which you didn't go back to J-Bay? No, no. (laughs) Well, I can, I can imagine for someone like you being, just being like, that's just sort of a ghost that's going to haunt me if I don't deal with it yeah look i I was i was fine um like i i I dealt with it i felt like i dealt with it pretty good like the first 10 days after the incident Mm. i wasn't doing great Mm. um but that was due to a few different factors like not surfing um and you know people like don't go surfing and a and also not being able to go outside my house because there was a media scrum outside the house 24-7. Yeah. And it's just like, can I just get on with life? Like it's not – no one's making this any easier. Like right. I don't know what you want by sitting outside my house. Is it you want to get a picture of me walking at my dog or, or yeah. something like that? And so – but once I – even like when I went for that first surf and I, I saw – saw a fin come through the uh, the wave, I was like, did that just happen? And and so I, Bearsy was, my mate Bearsy was driving a ski for me at the time and I'm like, hey, Bear, let me just jump on real quick. And he's like, what's up? And I went, I think I just saw a shark. And sure enough, next set, we saw a fin go through the wave and um, it was a little bull shark and, and – He's like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, just step me off on a wave and we'll go in. (laughs) Solution oriented. Yeah, yeah. And it was at a place that I don't really surf that often because, you know. You wanted to get away from the media frenzy. Yeah, yeah. So we're doing a thing with 60 minutes and they wanted the the first surf and this and that. And I was just like, well, all right, we're going to go somewhere else. (laughs) Did you at that time – you said you were having a hard time in those 10 days. Did you did you seek help with anyone? Did you talk to anyone to help you through kind of what you're feeling? Um, I talked to a bunch of different people. Um, a lot of a lot of the times when I go through, you know, heavy situations, uh, it's family, friends, yep. uh, people that I really trust, people in my real inner circle. Um, but then I also spoke to um, – a couple of other friends that are in the army corps and, and stuff like that. And, um, and they would give me a bit of their experiences and stuff like that. And it was like, okay, well, I'm not feeling anything different. So it is part of the course. So you just have to work through it when those feelings came up and it's like, all right, let's, 
let's deal with this and make sure it's all good and then move on. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was definitely times there were, um, you know, there were once I saw footage underwater um, when we were doing the filming, mm-hmm. I saw this footage and of someone coming up behind me, that freaked me out. That was right. probably the worst because it was sort of like, oh, I'm looking at it from the shark's that eyes now. Yeah. yeah. And and every morning I'd be okay. I'd go to sleep fine. I'd be okay. And then every morning I'd wake up and just start having nightmares. Right. And I'd just be like, like freaking out. And I was like, all right, it's okay. You're in bed. <laughs> You're not getting your feet bitten off. Yeah. Um, but just crazy how the mind can just create these things in your head and uh a lot of it was all right is that real no it's not real all right time to move on wslstore.com is powered by shopify we love the analytics we can check on the go a lot of us are addicted to checking the shopify app on our phones we also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and youtube channels It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup. I mean, you talk about, you know, you seem really open to be talking to everyone, you know, at the time, you know, it doesn't seem like there's a stigma for you. Like if you're feeling something, you're able to find someone to talk to. Has that always been the case for you or, or is that something you kind of matured into? No, no, it was, it's, it's been something that I've had to work on. It's been something that, um, I didn't know that was there. I, um, so I lost my brother in, when I was 17 and a lot of people in the, um, you know, around the area, they were like, be strong, be strong. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like be strong. And I thought it was like show no emotion. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got to be there for the whole family. You got to make sure that everyone is, 
he's doing okay and people coming up to me bawling and I'm just like blank faced. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I put up this wall and I had a wall where I'm like, I wouldn't let anyone in, but I wouldn't let myself out. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, obviously I'd talk to my friends, but even in those situations, I would be extremely like, I'm good. I'm good. And it wasn't until I go back into my own room by myself at night and just, and just crying. I was, I remember first time I ever met, um, Michael Gervais, who's sports site guy, legend bloke. Um, I was in his room and I'd never really told anyone the, the full story of how it all went down and, and, you know, how I found out and how I had to go and tell my parents and, um, and within the first half an hour of knowing this guy, I'm in his office, just bawling my eyes out. Sure. And he's like, have you ever let down that wall? And I was like, I didn't know I had one. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a, um, it was, it was a really big learning curve for me. And, and I learned to be able to break down that wall, but it was more like a roller door now. Mm. So I can put it up when I need to. Yeah. Um, and so I don't get affected by just, you know, off-passing comments or, right. or something like that. Like you walk down the street, hey, shark guys, like, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Uh, you know, it doesn't doesn't affect you. You just keep moving on. Um, and But then when I feel like I'm in a trusted area where I'm in a place where if I'm going to break down the people around me, I know I can trust that they can pick me up. Mm. Um, so yeah, that, that's how I, I learned to, you know, keep the wall up at times, but also put it down. Um, so that, that was something that, you know, I still work on it today. It's, it's something that takes time and it's something, you know, it's like anything you've, you've got to practice these things and, um, you know, show trust in people. I mean, I would also comment that it, it, it might also be something that you've been able to, <clears throat> when there are other situations where people are hurting, take a leadership position and help them through it. In a lot of ways, I remember vividly, you know, in Puerto Rico in 2010, when Andy passed away and, and I, you were the one calling the meetings and getting people together and like reaching out in a, in a way that <clears throat> was really impressive uh, to me in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of people just hadn't had that practice in processing trauma. Yeah. Look, I guess, in in that situation, I could see that everyone was just like, "What just happened?" Yeah, you know, and no one knew what was going on, and I sort of just half of me was like, "Yeah, I'm extremely devastated. I'm extremely hurting," yeah. but I knew I had to. I had other people that weren't dealing with it well, mm-hmm. and I had my friends, or and I was like, "All right." I know how to look after myself and deal with it when I have time to deal with it. Mm. But you got to make sure that these people are okay because if they're not okay, then something bad might happen again when no one wants that. So it was, I think a lot of it was a lot of the processes that I'd learned over the years to deal with heavy situations. I just went, okay, let's just put myself on the back burner because I knew I had the strength personally to deal with it. Mm. Um, but yeah, go in and just make sure that everyone sort of 
had a little bit of direction and and um, knew that it, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. It, you know, we're gonna we're all going to work through this together. And it wasn't it wasn't like a a thing like I wanted to be the hero or anything like that. It was just I cared for my friends and I cared for the people that were hurting. And it's like the only way to deal with it is get everyone together and let's deal with it together. Yeah. Um, so that that was my process. And I would go home once again after the day or, you know, the night or whatever, and I will give myself permission to deal with it then. Sure. And then, you know, once again, it sort of got to the end of the event in a group of people that I really trusted. And, and that's when I – anything that I couldn't deal with by myself, that's when I'd ask them for help. So it wasn't like a, you know, I'm the only soldier out there thing. It was like, all right, I just know when the right time for me to you There was a void it. that needed to be filled yeah. big time. Well, you mentioned Sean before and, and um, you know, I want to wind the clock all the way back to, to Penrith. You're born in Penrith and then you and your family moved to Tweed at 12 and that's when you start surfing mm-hmm. um in i guess i guess you started before but when you really got into it can you tell us about those first few years on the gold coast with your friends um who you mixed it up with and how how you really started to become i guess obsessed in a way to the point that you got very very good yeah um yeah it was it was funny we um so yeah we we used to live in ballina um and then we moved up to the gold coast and i just started i was starting high school um, at and Palm, Palm Beach, and Palm Beach, Palm yeah. Beach, Kremlin High School. Um, and then my brother Sean was was coming, and anyway, we're meant to go, and I was meant to go and sign up for soccer. You know, for the soccer season, I was so obsessed by soccer, surfing. I was like, yeah, whatever, I'll just do it because my brothers are doing it, and I hang out, and you know, I don't want to get left at home if everyone's at the beach all day. So. um I would, we went to go and sign on for soccer and went totally the wrong day. No one was there. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, and after that, like Sean's yelling at me, don't you take too long? I'm like, why? And he's like, oh, I'm going down to D-Bar to see if I can get sponsored by Quicksilver. And I'm like, yeah, cool. And he was so stoked when soccer wasn't open. <laughs> he's like, yes, we're off. And so we went down to D-Bar and just went surfing and, I came in just before Sean and um, I remember Danny Takino and Scott Peacock came up to me and then they're like, hey, how you going? I'm Danny and Scott from Quicksilver. I was like, oh, you're looking for my brother. Like how would they know that we're brothers never even met, you know? And and they're like, you guys are brothers. I was like, yeah. And they're like, oh, well, we're going to sponsor him, but we'll sponsor you too. And I was like, okay and i was like i never even you know never even had interest from people playing soccer and pretty much i never went to sign on for soccer it how, was like, how old were you here i was 12 <laughs> it's it's that easy everyone yeah it's that easy no uh, it was just it was just um i guess it was just a lot of it was it just was meant to be Timing, um yeah. yeah and um my brother was pissed that he thought he was going to be the only one sponsored by Quicksilver in the house, but and he, then he's he just to, had his sticker pack halved because you were getting the other half. Yeah, or well, he would steal all my shit anyway. <laughs> um, and 
and it was like, yeah, I was I was stoked. Like I was getting clothes for free. Like growing up, we didn't really have that much money. So mum would sew on different brand labels onto like Kmart clothes and, <laughs> and stuff like that. So it was like, yes, they're actually real. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. We, so, we used to go to Payless Shoes and then rip the fake logos off. Be like, no, these are Vans. Like, yeah, exactly. Or, or you'd you know steal converse labels and stick those on <laughs> yeah, and like we all did it and it it was um yeah so it was it was a really really cool time and then from there um we met dingo um so we'd surf with dingo a lot um and then uh met damon harvey and so that was sort of there was a, there was more of us in the group but they were two of the you know, the leading kids at the time, especially Dingo. Dingo was like this super kid. And so it was always like, all right, how do we get as good as Dingo? And then Parco moved down um, halfway through the year. And you guys are still 12? 12, 12 to 13. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Dingo's like six months older than us. Uh, and we all went to the same school. We all sat at the same seat. And yeah, Parker moved down from the Sunshine Coast halfway through the year. So that was our posse, mm -hmm. you know. And we would just surf with each other every day and we'd just try and push each other each and every day. And it was just I didn't I didn't know how to be a pro surfer or or whatever. I was just following you know, those guys' leads, like, well, I guess you got to do that. I yeah, I was, I was going to ask, what is a 13-year-old sponsored surfer? What do you have to do at that point? Um, or what, is, what does Quicksilver expect you to do? Yeah, not much. <laughs> <laughs> like, I wasn't getting paid or anything like that. It was just like, put stickers on your board, wear the wetsuits, wear the clothes. And, and are, you, are you guys thinking, We're, I'm going to compete, I'm going to win a world title, or is it just, uh, Dingo's better than me, I got to get that good? Yeah, it was so. It was, it was sort of like we all had, we all had that premonition as a kid. Like we'd go out surfing, and it was like, all right, we're going to do a twenty-minute heat. Whoever wins this heat is going to be the world champion. And so you'd always have that competitive, and then would, you know, you'd do your regional, your junior, your state events, and Australian titles, and. Um, and then the boys would go on to Worlds. I'm like, wow, how do you do that? And then, you know, you just – I was just trying to keep up with those guys. And um, I think that was a, a lot of lot of my success. Or I've, I've told Joel and Dean and that I wouldn't be anywhere near where I am today without those guys. Yeah. Like for – they didn't know it at the time, but I was – trying so hard to be them yeah. in every situation and um yeah you know i think that's sort of where our, our friendship grew too because even though we were competing against each other we all respected each other because we knew we were all just leapfrogging each other you know and it, and it went from it went from cadets into juniors into qs and then on the ct and then you know First year on my, Dingo's and mine, I think it was – no, sorry, the second year, we're all in the top 10. It's like, how the 
how the fuck did we get from being little brat kids to to here <laughs> you know but you hear that time and again whether it's like andy and bruce or cj and damien or like even people that don't have brothers they have like a very tight group of people that's like my, my goal was just to be better than that person and then that tension over the years that's that's how we got to where we were yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. it's you know i think people need to res respect those relationships and 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 know that that's what got them there and and that's something that we talk about now we talk about it openly with each other and um yeah it's like if one of us is having a hard time or one of us does good, we're all there to go, yeah, awesome. Like really stoked for you or, all right, do you need help? You know, you've helped me out in the past, so I'm always there for you. And and so we've sort of got this unspoken brotherhood in a way. I, I, I don't know if this was sort of, um, you know, the media building it up, but I, I do vividly remember hearing on this side of the Pacific like a major bidding war for Mick Fanning. Um, and it's probably because I worked at the Rip Curl Surf Center <laughs> at the time. So, so you're surfing for quick. And then is that true? Did you have a bunch of brands coming after you? If so, at what age was this? And, and how did you kind of respond? Um, I don't think it was a major bidding war. It was just... <laughs> within the surfing world. We yeah. like within, uh, within some circles. Yeah. No, it was... Um, I was sponsored by Quicksilver at the time. And, you know, I was getting what I thought was awesome money. I, I could buy myself lunch every day. Um, and then I get a phone call from Mick Ray from Rip Curl and he's like, oh, we want to we want to sponsor you and we want to offer you X amount of dollars. And I was like, is this a prank call? <laughs> like fully asked him. And um, he's like, no, nah, it's not a prank call. Like um, I'm like – um, I don't really know if this is a prank call or, or not. Um, maybe it's best if you just ring back when mum gets home. And, and um, so. <laughs> I, I would imagine what he had to tell his boss after he got off the phone. He's like, so is he really excited? He's like, no, he told me to talk to his mom. Oh, I was excited. Don't worry. But, uh, <laughs> it was more to the fact that because we used to prank each other all the time. I was like, is this a freaking prank call? And um, sure enough, when mum gets home, um, he rings back and and they chat. And within, you know, we it was sort of like the offer was there. I'm like, well, how do we, you know, be awesome to go and jump on that brand? And but I'm um, contracted these people and they're like, ah, oh, don't worry about that. We got that. And I'm like, okay, um, cool. I'm in. And so that was pretty much the bidding war. <laughs> what, and how old were you at that point? I was, when was that? I was just 16 at the time. Yep. Yeah. Wow. So you've been, so that would have been 97. 97, started in 97. Yeah. So You're coming up on. 23 years yeah around then yeah it's been a it's been a great relationship um but yeah it was i remember yeah so mick rang and then within um i think it was a week or two had gary done in our house with contract yeah and i was like all right sign away <laughs> was part of the contract at the time um ct wildcards for you or was that part of the appeal or like, i mean i'm I'm sure the the financial part was a big driver was there anything else 
around the relationship that you're like, oh, that's I'm going to be the one guy on this program or I'm going to get this opportunity? No, because at the time, Ripco had such a strong junior team. Yeah. Um, Who else was on the team? Zane Harrison. Yep. Um, Zane was like the man at the time too. Yep. Like, you know, I think the, the year after in 98, he won Sunset and then he won the pipe trials. Like, it was like, oh, shit. Um, if I want to be part of this team, I'm going to have to be stepping up my game. And Darren O'Rafferty, um, you know, that was sort of the the three guys that I would – and Hedgie, um, you know, Hedgie seemed like the oldest man on earth at the time. He was only <laughs> like two years older than me. He had a beard already. I was like, shit. <laughs> but that team, even just that group within ourselves really pushed ourselves um, and – and it sort of was like in my contract there was like, okay, if you win a junior, you get this and max amount. And then they're like, if you win a QS and then a, a world tour event, I'm just like, um, am I reading the right contract here? <laughs> you know? And it was like, wow, I can make that much money if I win an event. <laughs> and, um, but I, I was like, that's so out of my league. Um, and then, yeah, well, it was only, um like two years after that i started getting wild cards into the events mm -hmm. and um yeah and i i was totally out of my league at the time but um it was just such a great experience um and it was just yeah just it just all moved really fast like faster than what we could you would ever you know try and script you um you mentioned your brother sean he he tragically passed away in 98 in a car accident with joel green um and then it felt like um based on what you said after you won in 2001 that there was a, a dotted line between that moment and your relationship to sean and and coming out and winning bells yeah it was um there's a few things that sort of happened um you know, obviously the one that we spoke about earlier about the being strong and putting up a guard and this and that. But internally I had this this drive. I always had drive, but now I had a focus, mm. a focus of drive. It's like, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go out and, and do this. And and even even still to this day I'll be sitting there and I'll – when I was surfing – that was a place where I felt like I really reconnected with Sean. Mm -hmm. And so I always felt like this energy was there. Sometimes he he was probably off doing, you know, looking after someone else. But a lot of the time, a lot of the major times that, um, in you know, the real clutch times in my career, it felt like he was with me. And that was, um, that was really special. But, yeah, it, it ignited a fire in me that just – I never had felt before. It was like, I'm doing this and no one's getting in my way. Yeah. What did it feel like? Because I, I think, how, 18 when you won Bells, 2001? Uh, nine, 19 at the time. 19 yeah. and you're given a wild card because it's sponsors event. And I, I mean, I remember vividly watching the, the images and the videos and you had Danny Wills in the final and, and you could feel the release of energy after you came in and won. What was it like? It was it was crazy. Like 
that year was such a, a build-up. You know, we started on the Gold Coast and um, to be honest, I, I it was the first time that I found out that I had scoliosis because my back just was blown. And so I was like, a lot of the time I was working through that. So I was just so focused on making sure my back was okay and then ended up getting second to Taj at the first ever Quickie Pro on the Gold Coast and then um, went down to Newcastle. Didn't have a – I don't think I had a great event there but then went on to Margaret River and ended up winning Margaret River and we had to fly out that night over to Bells and I was just like, I'm – you know, I was with Hedgie, so we were, we were drinking beers the whole way. And I was just so hungover. I was like, oh, but still on such a high. And the Rip Curl event was like, all right, just go out and do your best. You know, you got no expectations and, and this and that. And I was just surfing. I was just like, all right. Um, I got to surf against my favorite surfers and – and then, yeah, before I knew it, I was in the final and I was like looking over and trying to say good luck to Willsey and he just brushed me. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And it's funny too to, to have that first ever world tour final against Willsey because he was a big rival of my brother Ed right. growing up. So right. it was sort of like – and one of my first ever um, surfboards was one of his hand-me-downs and so – known him for so long it was it was really special to be out in the lineup and i was sort of thinking okay let's let's do it that way let's make this real special and he was like no nah, fuck you, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm competing here this is my livelihood and this and that and and um just from that 35 minute final i learned so much and um yeah just the way that people compete and this and that and um but yeah it was probably the emotion was just shock mm -hmm. you know every day like i'd walk down the car park at bells and i'd see myself and i'm like oh i got through another heat and i'll check out the scores and scores was sort of up there with the other guys and just kept going and and i was just tripping out um and yeah it is like i mean it's such a funny thing because it, it it has the bells has this aura in the surfing world is sort of the place where the tribe gathers and mm. um you know my, i remember my first time there too you it feels different you it know is. and and the Wadarong people there talk about it being one of the intersecting points in the song lines and it, it has always felt like a like a spiritual home for surfing yeah very much so um you know you spoke about the Wadarong people that you know their their heritage and their um their story there is so rich and powerful and you feel the cliffs, like the natural Coliseum there, you feel like there's so many stories in that cliff and um, and it's not like other events where everything's so fast paced. You've got your 10, 15 minute drive out there and so you've got time to decompress where, you know, if you're at the Gold Coast, like I always felt like the Gold Coast was just high anxiety for me. Um, and then, yeah, it was so different to when you actually live there and then when you compete there, it was just totally different. But every time I went to Bells, it was like I just feel calm. And so that was always a big thing for me. And and I guess also having pretty much all my sponsors down there was another thing where I had all this support. And I almost had a routine down there that um, 
was was easy you know um but yeah the the whole sense of that place to me is just it's calming but it's extremely powerful and yeah. um and i think people you're away from people too when you're competing so it's uh yeah it, it was really really special and it also too that was my first ever trip for being a sponsored surfer i went down with um will lewis and andrew murphy for quicksilver back in the day and i was like best thing ever <laughs> you know i got to watch matt hoy ring the bell and then straight after that Oki won the skin so I, automatically i fell in love with it back then um and every time i went down i always had a great time yeah i mean i think that's you know in the many many um versions of the mcfanning story bells is such a foundational pillar you know and it, it was something that continues to this day i guess in a lot of ways yeah definitely definitely and, and that's that's why i wanted to finish my career there too is because i knew i was calm and i knew i'd be able to soak it all in where you know home is home but I would have been so sidetracked with everything going on. I, <laughs> sure. I wouldn't have wouldn't have let it sink in. So it was really special to have that event there, and um, yeah, just an event that I've always um, really respected, but also just felt great. You talked about some of your your colleagues at the time, whether they're on the Rip Curl team or not. You know, Hedgy and Taj and Joel and Dean, and that kind of when you look back over the course of the arc of surf history and surf competitive surf history, you guys were really foundational in changing things in a lot of ways from Australia, um, your generation. And you had almost immediate success on tour. Um, you know, you won the rookie of the year in 2002. I think you won the J-Bay event, your rookie year. <laughs> it's not something you see a lot these days, not, not from rookies. And, and I mean, even the state of Australian surfing in a lot of ways. Yeah, the the state of Australian surfing right then and there was incredible. Um, you know, I think I think the year that I qualified, I think there was ten Aussies that came on. Yeah, you know, just as rookies, and it was like, wow, we we got some force here, and and we were just like, we, you know, we would look up to the older guys, and you know, everyone would take in what they needed, and then and then it was up to us to you know, go about our own way. Um, but I, I truly believe that a lot of that success that we had was due to the the junior series that we had in Australia. You know, you'd, you'd compete on the junior series until you're 21. And so you had a, you had that learning about yourself, but also learning how to travel and compete and, um, before you had to get on the, the main stage. Then I, I feel like I feel like it's changed a lot now because the junior series stops at 18. Right. And it's not as strong as what it was because kids aren't finding their feet. You know, you hit 18 and you're like, some kids aren't even fully grown yet. Yeah. You know? And you have a look at like someone like Kai Otten. I think he got through maybe one or two heats. I think he's. I think his um, money that he earned on the junior series was something like three hundred dollars. But it wasn't until he got off the junior series he started to blossom. You yeah. know, and and so I, I sort of feel like maybe that's a big thing where we're stopping 
the kids learning and growing in that junior environment too young. Yeah. Um, and they get onto the QS and like, holy shit, this is a whole different ball game again. For sure. I, I, I think that's, I, I think you're dead on. I know it's something that we talk about in the building a lot when that age changed and i had this kind of the same point like physically maturing is one thing but like mentally maturing and psychologically maturing that's a lot happens between 18 and 20 when it used to be 20 and you know a lot of these 18 year olds are being either encouraged or forced to kind of get lost in the wilderness on the qs and you're just you're being thrown to the wolves in a lot of ways 100 percent, and I hate to say it, but the kids can go and blame Gabe, <laughs> Philippe, and those kids because they were winning events at seventeen. You, well, I was older. I, I, I'm slight, slightly old, but yeah. you're you're right though, right? Yeah. Because surfing is it's a community obsessed with the cult of youth, and yeah. anytime there's like an eleven-teen-year-old that is going to be quote unquote the next Kelly Slater, McFanning, the sponsors come knocking, and the opportunities come knocking, and there's this convergence of energy and attention on these kids at so young. Mm -hmm. And so A, a lot of other kids don't get opportunities, but as you said, it lowers the ceiling for when you have to perform, yeah. right? And then, you know, your Kai Ottens or your Mick Fannings kind of don't get to thrive because they're not physically or mentally ready to be on the world stage. No, for sure, for sure. Like even I got super close the year before I did qualify, but I didn't feel like I was ready. Yeah. You know, going to you know, even thinking about going to a place like Chopu, I was terrified. I was like, I don't even know what's going on here. And and it was like, I was totally out of my league in, the, in that situation. Give it another year, learn how to compete, learn how to travel a little bit more in different cultures and stuff like that. I felt a lot more comfortable. Even when I first got on the, the world tour though, I was like, if I didn't have guys like Hedgie, Michelob, Bo Eminen, um, Parker, like if I didn't have those guys looking after me, I was shot duck. Yeah. You know? And um, yeah, you see it in kids today that they're meant to be the, the next greatest thing. Mm. Um, and then they just get lost, you know? It's, it's, it's sad to see. Like personally, I'd like to see it go back to 21. Yeah, I would too. When you Should we start a movement? Hashtag it. <laughs> That's the only reason we're doing the podcast. Come on, kids. <laughs> Pat O'Connell's very malleable. He'll listen to this and he's like, we're changing it. Mick said so. Yeah, hopefully. Did So when you qualified, when you when you qualified in 2002, did you, you mentioned that there you felt like there were some gaps in your surfing. So did you, did you think that like I'm a title contender in year one or did you think I've got some work to do? Oh, shit, no. No, I, I got on tour and um yeah i had gaps everywhere you know i um i used to i used to look at the south pacific leg you know the islands and i'm just like well here comes two last places make sure you make it up somewhere else um my first four events on the world tour i had four 17th and i'm and i'm looking going all right well time to start doing the qs and you know i had huntington booked and then the euro leg booked and and i was doing crap on the qs too i was like oh god here we go like i'm, I'm gonna be one of those guys that has to do both tours and you know struggle for for years and and then there was just the turning point at j bay that was that was it yeah um 
still I didn't feel I was strong enough to be a world title contender. It wasn't it wasn't until 2000, 2006 that I actually thought I was a, a contender. Um, you know, and I remember Andy was doing an interview and um you know, the the guy asked him, you know, what about these other contenders like, you know, Joel and Mick and Taj and and he torched us. He <laughs> he's just like, show me their consistency. I'm not even worried about those guys. And it was just like, I had people coming up to me going, are you okay with this? I'm like, well, it's true, isn't it? You know, it's not like it was, if he didn't say that, then I don't think I would have worked on my consistency. And how, how did you, like, I mean, specifically, how did you approach some of these gaps? Um, yeah, look, it was just, you just had to go and experience it. Um, you know, in 2007, I, I sat at Chopu for a month. Yeah. You know, surfed every single day. And I, I was surfing with guys that, you know, a lot of the Hawaiian guys, a lot of um, Tahitian guys, and, and just was learning a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, was I taken off on the biggest waves? No, but I, I could see which ones were good. I could see which ones were yeah. not good. Um, and just learning the different types of, um, I guess, different angles and the swirls and, and all this. And it was, that was a huge, a huge thing in my, you know, in my future was, okay, if you're not comfortable somewhere, just go early, Yeah, learn, you know, Adriano did it. I was going to bring him up because it, there, there is sort of, as, as you said, like there are people that qualify for the tour and they feel like they're fully formed and they try to get by on whatever level they are when they, they get there. I think it's happening less and less so. But Adriano for me was one that seemed super humble because he was like the original air guy, like won the world juniors on the strength of air reverses. And then I think he worked really hard once he got to the tour on his rail game. Mm -hmm. And then he worked really hard as almost did the same thing you did where he, he went and stayed with Jamie O'Brien at pipe for six weeks. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it, it's like anything. The, the only way you're going to get better in these situations is hard work. Uh, uh, Adriana. Yeah. He came on like every other kid, just brash and, and, you know, it was just like, man you got a lot to learn yeah and he was great he was don't get me wrong he was incredible but yeah he he realized that he had holes in his game and he he was like i've got to go and work on that and it wasn't it wasn't just five days before the event when he won in 2015 it was years yeah you know i remember him telling me he said he hadn't been home in three months yeah. Because he would just go from one event straight to the next. Just to work, yeah. Yeah, and I'm like, look, have a breather, mate. <laughs> I, I do I do think that's one thing in surfing that doesn't translate that well unless you're you're physically there, which is the performance gap between the levels of pro junior QS and CT. I mean, I remember being an, like an asshole kid watching webcasts before I went on tour and thinking so-and-so sucks. Yeah. You know, because they're not this person. And then I remember going on tour and that same so-and-so is like the best surfer I've ever seen in my entire life, no comparison. Mm -hmm. And it's the speed and the power and the ability at the CT level. I, I don't think I don't think anything in surfing does it justice unless you're just there. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like anything. Um, you know, you people watch NFL or rugby league or, or soccer on TV 
and it's they just start picking out things, <laughs> and it's like they're like writing people off, like people going to stadiums and booing people. It's just like you don't even know what this guy's gone through to get here. Sure, he's having an off day. What do you do? You're you're an accountant or something. I'm sure you miss some numbers, you idiot. Like <laughs> it's sure. just people have off days, and but sports people get so scrutinized because they're in the spotlight and um yeah it's 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 hard but you've just got to learn to deal with it and you've got to go okay well this is what i'm doing and and this and that like how many times i read oh you've got to change this or you got to do airs and this and that and i'm like man i'm already doing this mm. just no one sees it sure yeah yeah <laughs> You, you mentioned 2006. I want to talk about world titles. You mentioned 2006 was the year mentally you felt like you were ready to go. But in 2004, you suffered the really, really gnarly hamstring injury, which to this day makes me cringe watching that wave. Um, was that a turning point for you in terms of how you approach fitness? Um, and did that kind of feed into the psychological strength of 2006 when you felt like I I'm ready to go after a world title? Yeah, 100%. Um before before that obviously you do a little bit of work but you know no one was knowingly going to the gym or no one was really you know i did i did yoga just to keep my scoliosis intact yeah. um and it wasn't until like even nutrition i would eat the worst food it was horrible you know um but it was just like once I had that injury and I, I got to meet um, Jan Carton, who ended up being my, my trainer for a long time, she taught me about food. She taught me about why the body does this and, and this and that. And it was incredible to, to just learn about myself. Um, and, you know, I had a, a couple of months where I, leading up to the first event of the year where I got to put that all in practice and feel the difference of doing it versus not doing it. This is the 2005 year. Yeah, yeah. you know, coming back. And um, and when I didn't do it, I didn't feel right. So that's why I just kept doing it. Yeah. Um, and then people were like, oh, he's doing really good. <laughs> like <laughs> we're going to have to step up our game. And, <clears throat> you know, Taj was – pretty much the first person that brought a trainer on tour. And, um, you know, we had, I think we had Griggsy at the time and Griggsy would, you know, implement, you know, yoga or if we wanted to train like this and that, like just trying to put all these different pieces of the puzzles together. But no one really knew, you know, when I first got on tour, it was like, you didn't have swell forecasts. And it was like, it was back when you got to have a whole day off if you skip round two. And it was, all right, I won my first heat. I'm going out tonight. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> Whenever the contest is on again, it was like, it was just, a, it was a really fun party tour. Yeah. Um, and and then, yeah, for to have the injury for me, it was like I totally, totally blew so many opportunities where if I was sharp, I probably could have won and, right. and done better. And I, I remember watching one, uh, an old replay in France and, surfing against wheels and I lost by the smidgenous but I was so off because I'd 
you know, a few days before I had a few beers and just, just blew it. Yeah. And I was, I was, I remember this guilt and I was like, that is never happening again. And, um, yeah, I was like, I've got to work before I play now. And, you know, even then I was still learning, you know, the consistency side of it, but I felt stronger. I felt more, more complete physically, which gave me confidence mentally to go and attack waves like Chopu or cloud break or, you know, have the distance to go a full day at J Bay or something. So that was, that was a big, big, it was a really big turning point in my career. You mentioned feeling mentally ready to attack a world title in 2006. You won your first one in 07. I think what goes somewhat underappreciated at that era was that was a really daunting era of, of world champs. You know, you had Andy won three in a row. You mentioned mm-hmm. him earlier, 02, 03, 04. Kelly won 05, 06. And, and those two titans were really at the height of their powers in that space. What was kind of different for you in 06, 07, specifically 07, that you felt like, no, I'm, I'm in the mix? Was there a turning point or performance that you remember? Yeah, it, um, it, uh, yeah, like as you said, like Kelly and Andy were so gnarly. And, um, you know, it was sort of like we would rock up and like, all right, we're fighting for third. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's what it was like. And, and the guys that you're talking about fighting for third are, you know, everyone from, Taj, Luke Egan, Oki, CJ, yeah, so gnarly. Uh, Parker, <laughs> like it was so gnarly. Like the top ten was like even just the bust in the top ten. It was like, wow, that was a bloody good year. Um, not that it's not today, but it was just so gnarly back then. Um, and it was through two thousand and six. Um, it was when the the search event. And at Mexico, it was just absolutely flawless. I went, I hadn't had a great year up until that point. Um, you know, I had a couple of results here and there, but nothing, nothing to go, yeah, this is my year. And I had a heat against Chris Ward and I just looked at it and, you know, I I came in thinking that I'd won and, and then I looked at the footage and I just went, you got to step up your game again, mate. And and so I I was uh, I went away and the next event was J Bay, but I went and just had some time off for a minute and I was reading a book by Kostya Zoo at the time and he was like you've gotta keep working. Like even when you feel like you're at at that point, you've gotta keep working and I was like, All right, this is what we're gonna do and um next event J Bay it was like, all right, let's let's see what we can do here. Let's add it all together. And I worked really hard in that event. Uh, ended up winning that event, and then from then on, all the way to um, to the end of the year, I didn't do any worse than a, a quarter, mm-hmm. um, and made and I think it was two more finals. So to me, I was like, that consistency's there. Now I'm ready to yeah yeah challenge for a world title. And they talk about that momentum a lot. Of, a lot of world champs talk about the momentum to win a world title starts like kind of the end of the year prior in a lot of ways. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's 
I think it's it's almost a build up of even it could even be a year, you know, or two. Um and yeah, that that for me was a a a big stepping stone. I remember I I went from like my years on tour, I went from fifth to fourth, injured third, and then that in two thousand six got third again. I was like, well, if I'm reading these numbers right, I'm just going to skip second and just go to first. <laughs> yeah, I had a gap year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so that was that was my thinking in my head, and um, yeah, it was something in me just just switched. I went, I've got the confidence to be consistent now. So let's go. And you're 25. You're 26 in 2007, and and you had an amazing year. You actually you wrapped it up pretty early in Brazil. Yeah, but in saying that, it was it was a, a crazy, crazy year. Like Taj and I were like people. I think Taj gets left out of that conversation a lot because Kelly was such a big presence. But Taj, Taj was the first one that year to win two events. Um, he was he was right there. Yeah. Um, you know, if he if he beat. Um, Bobby Martinez in the final at Mandaka, yeah. he would have been like way closer to me, like come come Brazil. It would have been way harder to win. Um and people don't realize that. Like it was it was so close be- between us. And then yeah, just sure enough happened the way it did in Brazil. But um yeah, it could have gone a whole lot of different if Taj had won it in Mandaka. You got him back for the the 2001 win at Snapper, the five star. Finally, <laughs> <laughs> what what? I, I obviously is emotional, and it, and Sean continues to be a thread throughout a lot of these moments in your life. And I remember you speaking specifically about it during that final or in, during that heat in Brazil. Um, you know, can you talk us a little bit through that? And I guess just generally, you'd been through I'm 26. You'd been through so much already at that point just you know ups and downs in life um to win a world title that young what did you feel in the moment and if you look back on it what did you think it what do you think it means you know in your career um yeah look, it's, there's a lot of questions yeah there. a lot of questions where do you want me to start um <laughs> yeah i guess i guess you know back to the sean thing um you know on that final day there there were dolphins you know going through the lineup and and to be real honest, I didn't think it was Sean or anything at the time. It was like um, it was around that time when emails were getting sent around about the um, dolphins in Japan getting slaughtered and stuff like that. And so I just followed that on. I thought that there was just the dolphins coming to say um, thanks, you know. <laughs> and so it wasn't like a a a, a thing where I was like, all right, that's him. This is the day. I remember driving up to the beach that day going and looked at the conditions. I went, I'm on today. That it, it, This is going to happen today. But it wasn't until after the after the semi, um, JD came up to me, who was filming at the time, and he he's like, I've got to sit you down for a second. I'm like, okay. Uh, and he goes, as soon as you won, like the Dolphins were only, he said the Dolphins were only in my heat and as soon as you won, they disappeared. 
He's like, I think that was your brother. And I was like, and I think someone overheard it and then it just started. Turned into it. Yeah, (laughs) it just turned into this huge thing. I was like, oh, fucking might as well just run with it now. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But at at the time... I just thought it was the dolphins coming to say thanks for helping Japan. family yeah. out. Yeah, you know, um, in my weird brain. But and then, yeah, like to win a world title. Yeah, sure, I'd been through so many ups and downs at that point. But winning, I didn't realize the pressure that comes, personal pressure that comes with being a world champion. And I was exhausted at the end of 2007. I was like, but then starting in 2008, I was, uh, you get pressure from everywhere. Yeah. And as mentally strong and as mentally prepared as you can be, you can't block a lot of this out. And it comes in and just starts, you start this internal chatter and all of a sudden this weight just, bears down on you and it feels like you can't surf. I remember Andy, I always, I'd quote this a lot and he said, he said something back in the day and he said, everyone in the world wants you to win your first world title. And the second you win, they want you to lose. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Everyone loves the underdog story. Sure. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he, <laughs> I remember talking to Andy when he was going into his second and third world titles and, he, and he's like, I just feel like it's so personal that everyone hates me. And I'm like, I don't think they hate you. I think they just want to beat you. Sure. But it's the same thing. Like during 2007, you'd be running out for your heats and everyone's cheering, go, go, go. 2008's dead silent. You're like, thanks, guys. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's – and it's something that you see a lot like in surfing on the men's and the women's side. You know, there's some people that – you know, sometimes there is just a huge talent shift, you know, like mm-hmm. with a Steph Gilmore where she was just so good for so long, even if the pressure ramped up, she could kind of keep it going. But man, I, I mean, even <laughs> you would get annoying emails from me every event and be like, I know you're trying to prepare, but you have to do this press conference and Kelly's going to be on the panel and it's going to take an hour and everyone's going to ask Kelly questions and you're going to sit there as the world champ and it's going to suck. Yeah, look, it it happened it, when he would show up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, but then that was the other. Yeah, I will, we'll digress into that. Um, but yeah, it was just that's what you've got to do. You you have a responsibility to when you um, become a champion. It it's like all right, you got to go and do these things. As much as it sucks, sometimes just suck it up, go do it, and. You know, then you don't have to worry about it. It's it's clutter that you don't have to deal with as you go through the event. So that was my look at it all. Um, look, even today, like, you know, Kelly's still stealing headlines from world champions, you know, just with his one way of a backdoor, you know. Sure. Um, but, but that's just the aura of him. Mm. Um, and that will always happen until he, you know, I'm sure – if he ever retires, he's going to come into an event with his walking frame and people are just going to gravitate to him. Kelly, Kelly, Kelly. <laughs> and it's like the, the, 
whoever's the world champion at the time, um, I'm here. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, pr- it's just probably just it be like an act at that point too. Like <laughs> Willy Wonka, he'll just do like a forward roll and put a jersey on and go get a tenant backdoor or something. Like Yoda, right? That's right. Yeah. The the um, you know, I think when you look at a lot of other multi world title winning champs in our sport we talked about there was a there's a lot of like back to back to back but you you have a pretty big range in terms of being the world's best surfer you know um one in 07 one in 09 one in 13 surfing in terms of a high performance art evolves a lot you know year to year um and was that something that you had to take in through those years to to kind of reinvent yourself or to play with equipment i know you have a great relationship with darren hanley and, and have had for for decades but was that something you went into each year thinking like, I need to step it up, I need to step it up, these are the lessons I've learned? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Every year you would, you know, you'd sit down at the end of a year and you'd go through, okay, this worked really well. This is where I think surfing's going. Um, take that with you, but then you're going to have to work on this side of things where all right, I've got to work on aerials, I've got to work on being stronger, faster, uh, chew riding. Like you've always got to keep turning the notch up. And, um, some people don't see it, but like even going in and seeing DH, like there were years where he was just struggling with boards. You know, you talk to shapers about how they go through hot streaks, you know, and everyone's on their boards and then all of a sudden, it just slowly declines. Um, and, you know, that happened with me and DH. Even as good as our relationship was, it did happen. Mm. Um, you know, and I would, we would try the boards and, and this and that and, you know, just trying to keep you at a, a level. Um, and through those, through the, um, like, anywhere from, two up to you know 2011 things were inconsistent you know on that side of but there were also too with the new spark of guys like Geordie Dane yeah. Gabe you know you're looking at these things going I've got I'm I've got to step up my game and just go straight to that and you totally forget where your bread and butter is and your foundation yeah and I think people get hoodwinked in that sense and and yeah there, there was a turning point for me especially from 2012 onwards where I was like I know what I'm really good at now it's just adding little things where I can mm. or you know just sharpening the tools that I already have and it um and i think that's where you know from 2012 until the end of my career where my consistency came from was like don't throw the baby out with the bathwater make sure that you've got your foundations trust that and then when you are confident start adding new things the decision so you, so you win your third title in 2013 knowing you you approach 2014 with i'm winning a world title and 2015 with i'm winning a world title and 2015 was a crazy year for a lot of reasons and you came very very close at the end the decision to step away from full-time competition when when was that seed planted for you and how did you kind of process that between when you first started thinking about it and when you when you made the decision 
Yeah, look, it it slowly started creeping in. Um, to be real honest, the first time I actually thought about it was 2011. I was just like, I just had the shittest year, and I was just like, I'm over it. Mm. Um, done. And I went home and I locked my boards up in my garage and I gave myself like three weeks of not even looking at them. And then, and then it was like, hang on, nah, I'm missing something here. But it slowly, realistically started coming in, oh, maybe 2013. Yeah, right. Yeah. I remember- During your world title. Yeah. yeah. Like I remember talking to um, Phil, my coach at JBAG going, I'm here now, but I don't know how long I'm going to be here for. Mm. And he was like, all right, well, just be here now. <laughs> good, <laughs> uh, good coach. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and so we, you know, it, it, was, it started coming through. And, um, yeah, I think 2015, I was slowly starting to, you know, shape my world into um into all right let's start preparing for what's next right um and even before jbay that year yeah and um it was yeah look even that year i was i was totally committed like i i, I thought in my head i was going to do two more years and i'd be done yeah um and with the events that happened in 2015, I got to the end of the year and I was just, I was, it wasn't that I was done with events. It was more, I just had no energy. I was, the barrel was dead empty. I had no, I couldn't give to myself. Therefore I couldn't give to anyone else. Sure. I, you know, I just lay in bed and I just, I didn't even feel like getting up. Like I, I, yeah. it felt like, a, I guess, I've never been someone that gets crazy dark, depressed, but there were, it was the first time that I was just like, this could be exactly what that feels like. You just don't want to get up. You don't want to see the world. You don't want to do anything. I just, I just didn't have the energy to face it. I didn't have the energy to even go down the street and get a coffee and have someone just go, um, you know, sorry about this or sorry about that because I didn't I didn't have the energy to keep up my wall. Yeah. And then also just everything would have just fallen apart on the street. It would have been fucked. <laughs> well well, I mean, I think that's something that because it is such a dream life, um ob- objectively, but certainly from the outside, from an outsider's perspective of like, wow, look at these guys and girls, they they travel to exotic locations and they mix with beautiful people and they're famous, but maybe not too famous. And they get paid to do something that's so fun. Like we say this a lot, like what do pro surfers do on their day off? Well, they go surfing, like mm. other sports, they don't do that, you know? And so, but I, I think that does mask the level of commitment and sacrifice that goes into competing at a high level and traveling internationally in 2015, from an outsider's perspective for you, uh, beyond the shark attack and, you know, with relationships and, and your brother's passing and getting so close to winning a fourth world title, I, I can't imagine how you could get up in a lot of ways. Yeah, it was it was exhausting. But a lot of those things sort of fueled me to keep going. 
Right. You know, um, and you know, there it was. It would trigger different emotions and stuff like that. And so when I went surfing, like surfing's my healing place. At the end of the day, it's mm. it's the place where I go if if things aren't right, I go surfing or I go into the ocean. And so keep going back there was like, yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm okay, I'm safe here, and and competing was so comfortable for me that even being on tour with all this shit going on, I felt comfortable there. Like going to an event, going into a competitor's area, I was totally comfortable. It you becomes know. like its own form of meditation. Yeah. Way, so. Yeah. It's like walking into your mum's house <laughs> after you moved out. Um, but it, yeah, I just felt comfortable there and it was like, okay, I'm, I'm safe here. But yeah, at the end of that year, it was just like, I, I don't know if I can do it. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I can even just show up and compete. Sure. Um, and it was, a, it was a big decision. You know, I, I, I spoke to not only my, my f family and friends, um, I spoke to my sponsors and, um, and, and even with my, even with my sponsors, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to compete to this point or that point, but it was okay. I'm going to get to this point and I'll see what happens. Mm. And as, as uh, you know, bells was sort of like my point to like, all right, just step away for a second. Cause I, I hated going to surf the event in Margaret river. I just hate main break, <laughs> 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 but I was like, I can skip that event and be totally fine. <laughs> um, and so that was my first, first stepping away. And it was, it was different. It was to, to make that decision. I won't lie. It was, terrifying um to get on the phone and paul speaker was the ceo at the time and i rang him and i was like yeah, what do you think about this or that and he was just like we'll just support you in any way you go and i was like well that felt great you know yeah. and same with my sponsors um they were extremely supportive and it was like all right now i have the confidence to go and just see what happens and and that year even when i left i didn't know if i was coming back for a year or if I was coming back for 10 years sure. or this or that, it was just, just go and live and, and fill up the fun tank again. And, um, I got to a point where I was just learning to be away from the tour was so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so hence the history where we are today. <laughs> the, um, you mentioned like kind of really like a long lead time in terms of working specifically focusing energy on what that looks like post CT career. And when we talk to a lot of people, both people that work on tour and people that compete on tour about how difficult that transition can be because it becomes your life for, in some cases, decades of living out of a suitcase and um, your family or the people on the road in a lot of ways. Um, but it sounds like you had a really intentional approach to uh, I'm going to set myself up for it with projects, whether mm -hmm. it's, you know, businesses or, or video assignments or projects with my sponsors. Yeah. Um, look, I, I still, it wasn't that I fell out of love with surfing, just the goalposts were changing. Mm. It was like a world title isn't 
isn't my be all and end all anymore. It was, you know, walking off the beach and watching Adriano win. I, I was really happy for him, but I didn't care. I really didn't care. You know, I felt like, and at that point, I was just like, maybe it is time to just keep walking, <laughs> keep walking on a little and get on a plane and go home. Um, but it was, you know, you you think as a sportsman, and there were definitely times where that was my whole world. You know, that was my one my mind striving point and the one thing that I really wanted to do. And I don't regret that or, you know, I had a great time and I learned a lot about myself and this and that, but it just came to a point where the goalposts just shifted. I'm not on field A anymore. I'm on field B and I'm going to go play this game over here. Right. As it stands today, your, your projects, which I mean, some of them are pretty well reported on Balter breweries, um, creatures of leisure, uh, Nick Fanning soft top boards, which are great. My son loves his. Perfect. Um, we paid full retail. <laughs> I let Nick know. Let let me let me know. I'll I'll sort the lad out. <laughs> um, but I, I mean that that's something that because of your accomplishments and because of the way you've managed you, your career in a lot of ways, you're you're afforded these opportunities to do. I mean, how much energy do you put into these projects? You know, week in week out. Um. Look, there's there's emails and and you know phone calls and text messages that you have to to deal with, um, but a lot of the the people that are in their jobs at these different companies, they're there because they're way better than me at their job. Mm. I'm more of a sounding board, <laughs> so it's like, do you want to try this? I'm like, well, I've seen that happen there. I've seen that happen there, and it, it just you know, being a sounding board through experience, um, you know, to put me in an office for nine hours a day, I'm losing it. I'm just <laughs> like, I'm out, see you in two months. <laughs> um, and as I said, I still I still love surfing and I still love the, the things that I do. So I still have a lot personally that I want to go and achieve in my in my surfing world, sure. um, new experiences, new places, um, you know, working with different crew. Um, and, and to me now creating a, a project that will stand the test of time. That's my new world title. That's my goal Yeah, right. where people can go back in 10, 15 years time and go, that's still relevant today or something like that. That's, that's, that's my goal. While we're quickly on the topic of business interests, I, I, it would be criminal not to mention your mom, Liz, mm -hmm. um, who has a legendary reputation within the surfing world, within the negotiating world. And, and uh, I, I would just argue sort of just as a mom in terms of her relationship to you, can you explain a little bit about who your mom is and what makes her so special? Yeah, she's, she's a legend. Um, she's, she's a hundred percent honest. <laughs> sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's bad, but, um, yeah, she, obviously she's my mom. She's incredible in that, in that realm. But, um, you know, going through my career got to a point where I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. And, um, 
and sh- she was she was so her I remember going to her one day and I'm like mum what do you think that I'll get a manager and she was a nurse at the time and she looked at me and she goes are you stupid and I'm like don't think so other people might beg to differ but um she's like you're smart enough to look after yourself you don't have to give someone else your money for things that you can do and i'm like well i don't exactly know what i'm doing she's like i'll help you and i'll teach you how to do these things and and from that point on she was um sort of took on the manager role but it wasn't like a manager where they do everything for you, you know, book flights and that. I still had to do all that stuff. I still had to talk to the sponsors. I still had to sit in negotiating meetings and, um, you know, talk about my projects, why I should be still sponsored and, and this and that. And she would be there and and she would back me up. If they weren't listening to me, that's when she would come in <laughs> and uh, he punched a shark. You give him some more stickers. Yeah. No, nah, I wasn't. By that time we were, you were we, fine. We were yeah. fine. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, just in the younger years, she, you know, I would explain to her what I was feeling and then, you know, she would listen to the, whoever we were dealing with at the time and listen to there. And she would create, she would almost be a mediator in a sense. Um, and so it, it taught me a lot. It taught me, how to manage my business, how to manage, um, you know, people's expectations of what they want and what they should get and this and that. Um, but also, yeah, she she helped me out tremendously with finances and stuff like that and helped me steer money in the right direction so I didn't go and spend it on chocolate. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good mom job for yeah. sure. This is coming out just ahead of the start of the 2020 season. Um, you're in the middle of rehabilitation, as we talked about in the upfront. What are some of your performance goals once you're back up to 100%? Are we going to see you get a wild card back onto the CT? And uh, is there still is there still gas left in that tank for you? Um, it's funny. Like I've thought about it here and there, and you know, people ask me to come and do events, and um, you know, I, there were times. You know, Ripco asked me to come and surf at Bells last year and I was like, yes, no, yes, no. And it just kept going back and forth and it it, it always ended up on no. <laughs> and then um, I remember ringing Neil Ridgway and I was like, um, just to let you know, I'm out. And he goes, yeah, I made that decision for you weeks ago. We've already given away the wild card. I was like, perfect. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, look, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule it out. Um, you know, there's, there's places I'd love to go back to and 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 compete or whatever, but I would have to weigh it up in my in my own head. Is it is it being a selfish point, mm. or is it actually I'm going to go there and you know make a difference in the event or something like that? It wasn't like. I have to do it because my ego needs it. It's like I'll go and do it and just enjoy it. That makes sense. I guess based on what you talked about before, it doesn't feel like there's any quote-unquote unfinished business for you performance-wise. No, no. Um, 
you know, to be able to to be able to go and surf somewhere like J Bay with one other person out, pff, <laughs> anyone would do that. But in saying that, I can go and go to these places and and surf them. You know, there might be a handful of people out, but I'd probably enjoy that more. I, I I'm still really undecided on where it is. Um, with my knee, you know, I can totally rule out. Um, you know, my, I don't think my performance level would be up to somewhere like Bells at the moment. Yeah. Um, but, you know, another six months down the track, who knows? Sure. I could be just fat and old and <laughs> I can't even get up on my board. So I don't know. Until I, I surf again, I still until I start moving that direction, I, I can't answer it. Do you still watch events? Love it. I love it. I. It's such a... I have so much more fun watching the events these days than when I was competing because I don't have this sense of anxiety of like, you got to look at all this sort of stuff and all right, you got to go and do it. And, you know, you're timing your meals so you're not too full when you paddle out. I can sit there and I'm just a big pig on the couch, just <laughs> being the biggest couch critic. And, um, but I, I, I try and watch as much as I possibly can. And, um, yeah, I, I, I love watching. I'm, I'm biggest fan. What are your uh, predictions for the 2020 season? Ooh, yeah, look, it's it's going to be um, it's going to be wild. I, I think I think Gabe is going to have a real bee in his bonnet. I you know I love Gabe. I, I think he, out of all the people I ever competed against, gnarliest gnarliest competitor. Um, and he, you put Kelly, Andy, Taj in that list, and it's still Gabe. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think Joel right behind him would probably be Andy when Andy was so on fire. Mm -hmm. He was, you know, so untouchable. And Kelly, Kelly too is probably for me. Um, they they all brought a different thing, but Gabe's whole package is just ridiculously ruthless. Um, not in ruthless like he's mean. It's ruthless in the sense that he will not give anyone an inch in any type of conditions it's he's incredible um in saying that <laughs> um you know i think he's going to have a lot to prove this year you know becoming so close and you know he had a couple of you know the hiccup in portugal i think that was one that He's going to have to deal with for a bit, but um, he's been a slow starter a few seasons too. I wonder if I wonder if getting that close last year is going to focus him in from the from the jump. Yeah, it could do anything. You know, the bridesmaid effect can can either fully just kill your confidence, mm. or it can keep you rising. Right. Um, Italo is going to be phenomenal. I think what. I don't think people actually realized how good he was in 2019. You know, you have a look at his results and I was like, I didn't even realize it myself until I actually went through. I was went, holy shit, he made five finals. Yeah. You know, that, that is huge. And to win three, like in this day and age, like when was the last time that someone went on and made five finals and won three events in this day and age of surfing? Well, and I think like it's a good point, and and I think like that's kind of I'm not like a ASP WSL apologist, although I get framed that way sometimes. <laughs> but you know, I, there's a lot that can be improved with competitive surfing. But I do think it's like at the end of the day, and I, I talk about this a bit. Like, 
you're just creating conditions for something magical to happen. Oh, 100 percent. And someone like Idolo, I remember when he qualified, and it was like my job to kind of be aware of what's happening in surfing. And I, I kind of knew about him, but it was most of the mentality in the Western world was like, oh, that's another Brazilian. Mm. And it's like he turned into this. And he was always amazing, but he just turned into this amazing story. And I just think that's that's just such a cool thing. Yeah, I remember when I first saw him, I was I was next to Jadson on the beach, and we were, I think we were just walking around, and I, was, I saw him on the way, and I'm like, "How's this kid?" And he's like, "He's going to be crazy." And I'm like, "All right, if you say right. so." Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, you know, and then got to know him, and, and you know watch his vibe and his aura around the events. And just in the last two years, his confidence in himself has grown a lot. Yeah. Um, and then his surfing's just it speaks for itself. It's incredible. Um, I think he benefited from a, a, a very special handoff with you at your last event in the final. Yeah. Well, that was a big thing for me too, like to see how much he wanted that and mm. see how much it meant to him. That was a big point for me to go – yeah, I'm not up to this level anymore. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was truly truly special to be in that with him, and you know to to think that was 2018. That was his first ever win. Yeah. 2019, he's world champion. Yeah, like that's that's a even in 2018, he did he win two or three events. Well, I I mean that's kind of what we talk about, where it's like it, the title campaign starts the year before mm. in a lot of ways, and I, mean, I don't think you can replicate like, not that it was a handoff, but there's a little bit of a juju absorption. Like he, it's your last event, you're on fire, he's on fire, and it's just this energy transfer for someone. Yeah, I think when you, when you break through and win that event, win an event is it's, a whole different thing. Sure, you have a, a whole different mindset. You have a confidence that. I can do it because I've done it before. Yeah. Once you get over that hump, it's it changes. So I, I'm not stealing any credit from him. It's <laughs> <laughs> incredible. Well, but and you know, it's the the era of kind of possibility for a lot of people too. That I think Gabe had a big part in ushering in because you talked about it before how that top ten was like a foregone conclusion for forever. Mm. You know, it was like the quarters was always going to be like Kelly, Andy, Mick, Hobgoods. Bobby, you know, like for, yeah. for a long time. And then when Gabe won the world title, you start having guys like Wilco winning events. Mm -hmm. And like, I think it just kind of broke the ceiling on on this next generation in a lot of ways. What about the Australians on tour right now on the men's side? We'll get to the women in a second. Um, Yeah, look, I, I guess the season that Jack had towards the end of the year, I think he made like four, three or four quarters in a row. Right. You know, that's, that's a huge confidence for Jack. Um, Especially when he he was really really erratic yeah. in his first couple of years, so um, to have that that's that's going to be huge huge for him. I think he's going to take that confidence on. Jules, um, you know, I th I think he was someone that everyone wants him to win a world title, and he has the talent to. It's just believing in himself. But I think he put so much into the year before and came up just short sure. i think as i said that's the bridesmaid effect yeah it can it can drain you or you know lose your confidence a bit um or it can just fire up again and i think he sort of i think he was just a little exhausted and you know i think he will, he'll step back up and i feel like the surfing that owen did throughout the year this year is a big confidence booster for him totally um i haven't seen him surf 
that good since when he was rivaling Kelly for the the title. 10, 11. Yeah. yeah. Um, And then Ryan Callanan is a kid that I I absolutely love. I just love everything about him. So spontaneous and so um, generous and awesome on the beach as well. He's just a a great human all around. I'd love to see him do well. So, you know, we we have some good kids coming through and then the, the new the new people, um, Connor O'Leary back on tour, um, young Morgan Sibilic, um, you know, there's, there's some really good. Ethan's back on tour. Ethan, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I I mean, I think there was a little bit of a waning after you and Joel kind of stepped away and Taj stepped away and now it feels like it's being built back up, but it's a different world with the Brazilians than it was when you guys were on tour. It is. And it's going to go through ebbs and flows, you know, um, you know, if you, this Brazil is extremely strong on the back of Gabe, Italo, and Philippe. Yeah, three of the most exciting surfers in the world. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, it, it's going to push people. But then there's going to be these. There's going to be a set of kids from elsewhere that just go, "Fuck it, we're going to try and take them out." Yeah. You know, it happens. So, um, it's it's going to be. It's. I think it's going to be exciting. Um, and then last but not definitely not least is getting John John back fit and healthy. Um, you know, we saw what he did at the start of 2019. Um, I felt like he was going to be on this untouchable run. Um, you know, my dream is to see Gabe, John and Idolo all just fight it out. And so they're all just going neck and neck all the way to the end. You, you know? got to put an Australian in there too. Oh, yeah, I'll throw them. my my boys know I've got them. I just don't want to put the pressure on them. <laughs> okay. I'm always there. It's for a strategic them. answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just just for the media fans. <laughs> and, and on the women's side, um, I mean, you got Tyler coming back. You've got Steph um, circling in eighth. You got Carissa stepping away for the year, mm-hmm. and just uh, that the level of performance on the women's side is so high. Yeah, I can't wait to see Tyler back. Um, you know, to to come back and make final straight off was incredible. Um, Steph is always incredible. Um, you know, Steph's one that if she's hungry, watch out. Mm. Um, it's all up to her a lot of the time. Um, so, if, yeah, if she's hungry, put her right in the mix. Um, Carolyn Marks, she's growing and learning each and every day. And um, and Lakey Peterson as well. I think Lakey's had two incredible years where it's just totally come undone in one heat at the last event where she's in the race every single time, if not leading the race going into those. And, um, I think she, she will have some, she'll have something to prove too. Spends a good chunk of her time down at Bell's beach too, which can't hurt. It can't hurt. (laughs) All right. Before we go, we've got the lightning round, but we're going to call it the white lightning round. Oh God. Mick sound effects, faucet. Good. That was great. We're going to have some sound effects. Okay, so we've got 10 questions. You answer them as quickly as you can. Mm-hmm. One board set up for the rest of your life, single fin, twin fin, thruster, quad, bonzer, or finless? Uh, thruster. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Burrito or pizza? Burrito. Last book you read? Mm, could be a while. <laughs> oh, shit. I forget. Yep, totally forget. Best surf film ever? Uh, momentum too. Mm. One wave you never have to go back to. Main break, Margaret River. 
only get to surf one way for the rest of your life home which part mm, well you can catch one all the way down <laughs> no um <laughs> yeah if if i could have six foot kira every day for the rest of my life i'm 100 percent fine this is a bonus question for me two foot snapper or three foot d-ball three foot d-ball amen best person to share a lineup with um Mmm, this could be a while. Um, I'm going to say Taylor Knox. Worst person to share a lineup with? Um, Dingo back in 2004. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last one. Finish this sentence. I will next achieve a state of happiness by... I will next achieve a state of happiness by going and doing a pee because I'm really busting. <laughs> <laughs> Mick Fanning, thank you for coming on the lineup. Thanks, Dave. So that's it. That is the lineup's March 2020 conversation with three-time world champion Mick Fanning. I hope you enjoyed it. This episode is produced by Henry Beyer with art direction by Jason Penning and copywriting by Dan Willen. Thanks to them and thanks to our sponsors. We appreciate their support. I hope you safely get some waves wherever you are and we'll see you next Tuesday.